If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 2? Matthew chapter 2. Um, today we are completing our series of messages entitled Christmas According to Matthew. And um, we've looked at it. I kind of like looked at this. There were four parts to Matthew's Christmas narrative. And I've kind of looked at it as four chapters. Chapter number one, we looked at a twisted family tree. Chapter number two, a complicated birth. Chapter number three, unexpected visitors. And this morning, the fourth and final chapter, I've entitled A Narrow Escape. A Narrow Escape. And we're looking at Matthew chapter two, beginning at verse number 12. We'll read down to the end of the chapter. And it says this, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they, that is the Magi, departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. May God bless his word to us this morning. Amen. And so this month, again, we've been looking at Christmas according to Matthew, almost pretending as if we had never received Luke's account, as was the case for Matthew's first readers. And our goal has been to understand the significance of the coming of Jesus into our world as a baby, the incarnation, from Matthew's perspective and according to Matthew's story. For we want to make sure that we don't miss the point that Matthew was trying to get across to his first readers, who were Jewish believers in Jesus, who were being persecuted by their fellow Jews. And he was trying to remind them and, and speak to them, telling them Jesus was truly the long-awaited Messiah and Savior of the world. And others, don't give up your faith in Jesus. Don't throw in the towel on Jesus. We want to make sure that we capture that point. But as we continue in Matthew chapter 2, the story takes a sudden twist. And we quickly move from that, this incredibly beautiful scene that we ended with last week where we find the Magi um, worshiping the baby Jesus and offering him their gifts. And again, as we mentioned last week, the baby Jesus was probably about eight months old at the time. But we move from that beautiful scene 
to suddenly Joseph picking up his young family in the middle of the night and fleeing to Egypt, making a narrow escape from Herod's maniacal wrath. Once again, we read of dreams and angels and prophecy, prophecy, and at every turn, God is stepping in to give instructions and to ensure the well-being of the baby Jesus. And as we'll see, Matthew continues to point out how everything that took place, even in this narrow escape, was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And I want to point out to us once again this morning that Matthew is very detailed and historically accurate. For one, the description of King Herod, Herod the Great, he was called, trying to kill the baby Jesus out of his own paranoia, as well as ordering the killing of all these baby boys in Bethlehem. None of that is at all out of character. In fact, it fits well with what we know about him. We know that he killed one of his wives. He killed three of his sons, and thus it was said, presumably by Caesar Augustus, it's better to be Herod's pig than son. At one point, he also executed a total of 46 members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, whom he felt were involved in sedition against him. And in fact, no one, no one in his family or circle of friends was safe. And then we read in verse 22 about Archelaus. For after Herod's death in 4 BC, Archelaus, one of Herod's sons, took over Herod's throne, ruling over the regions of Judea, Samaria, and Idumea for nine years, from 4 B.C. to 6 A.D. And we know he as well was a violent man, early on killing 3,000 protesters who had flooded into the temple, mourning and protesting the recent deaths of three Jewish teachers and students. And thus, it's no wonder that the angel warned jo Joseph not to take his family back to Bethlehem, but to head to Galilee, where his brother Antipas ruled with a much softer hand. And I say all of that because, you see, those who want to chalk up to fanciful, fanciful fable, Matthew's account, have to deal with the fact that the historical parts of his narrative are right on the mark. Most of all, however, I want us to see this morning that as Matthew tells, tells this part of the Christmas story, he does so not just for the sake of history, but because of what it says about Jesus. For through it, Matthew paints for us a picture of who Jesus was and the kind of life that he lived. And again, the fact that he is truly the Messiah who is spoken of by the Old Testament prophets. And so we find, beginning in, 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 in verse 13, we find Jesus' life is threatened. Jesus' life is threatened. And again, what we read here fits extremely well with, with, with the Herod the Great that we know from history. For when Herod realizes he's been betrayed by these magi, he goes into a fit of rage. And thus the angel says to Joseph, Herod's about to search for the child to destroy him. And when Herod can't find the baby himself or doesn't know how to find the baby himself, he orders the killing of all the baby boys in Bethlehem under the age of two. Now, some might ask, well, if he knew the timing given by the Magi, as we spoke about last week, knowing that the baby was probably just a little less than a year old, why order the killing of all the baby boys under the age of two? And I think the best answer is this, that knowing that Herod was not always rational, 
and that he would take no chances, that maybe their timing was off or he got the story a little wrong, rather than kill all the baby boys under the age of one, well, as he might have said, just to be safe, let's kill all the baby boys under two years old. Let's not take a chance that we got something wrong. And so Herod's soldiers go through the little town of Bethlehem, and it says, and in that region, killing any boys under the age of two that they could find. Can you imagine what it was like that night in Bethlehem? I mean, pause for a moment. Can you imagine what it was like that night in Bethlehem? The screaming, the crying, the weeping. And Matthew points to the words of Jeremiah the prophet. When Jeremiah writes of Rachel weeping for her children, Rachel, that was Jacob's wife in the Old Testament, being used to symbolize the people of Israel, especially to symbolize the women of Israel, mothers weeping over their lost children. Notice she's weeping in Ramah. Why in Ramah? Because that's the place where she was buried. And she's weeping on behalf of mothers who have had their baby sons torn from their arms and killed right in front of them. It's another terrible and sad moment for God's people. It's no wonder they were looking for their Messiah. And in fact, if Joseph had not gotten the baby Jesus out of there when he did, if he hadn't followed the angel's instructions as he did, Jesus' life would have come to a premature end. But the truth is this. The threat on Jesus' life did not stop there. And you know very well that throughout the Gospels, we read of Jesus' life being threatened time and again. It seems like as if it was the enemy's scheme to try to bring Jesus' life to an end before he could embark or complete his ministry. And thus we read time and again of Jesus narrowly escaping death at the hand of his persecutors. But you see, God would not allow an untimely death, would he? Jesus' ministry had to be completed. And yes, he would die at the hands of evil men on a cross reserved for the worst of criminals, but not before his time. For the cross would come at, at, at the right moment, not a moment too soon, so that from that cross, Jesus could cry, it is finished. It's finished. But that would not happen before God's timing. And Matthew gives to us a picture of Jesus right from his birth as one whose life was constantly threatened, a life that would eventually end up being taken by those who, who hated him, who would attack him, those who were threatened by his coming and yet not a moment too soon, a life that was threatened. But then secondly, as the story goes on, we find Jesus becomes a refugee. Have you ever thought of him in that way? Jesus becomes a refugee. You see, at the angel's instructions, Joseph picks up his family in the middle of the night and takes them to Egypt where they will be safe. And we know from history that many Jews had fled to Egypt under Herod's reign, just as they had done many times throughout history when things had gotten tough in their own land. And thus there was a large Jewish population in Egypt. We, we might say even a large refugee population. How long Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus were there, we're not exactly sure. But it was at least a year, if not two, until Herod's death in 4 B.C. And thus Mary, Joseph, and the baby find themselves as refugees, maybe as part of this refugee community in a foreign land. Can you imagine what that was like for them? 
How did they know where to go? What kind of living quarters did they have? It's highly unlikely they were able to truly settle down, you know, build a house, build a new life for yourself, get things in order. This was a temporary place for them as they awaited what would come next. I can only imagine Joseph trying to pick up some work here and there to sustain Mary and and the baby. Maybe, as many point to, the gifts that were given to them by the Magi were the means by which they were able to support themselves as they sold off the frankincense, the gold, and the myrrh. But Matthew points out, or he points to the words of the prophet Hosea, from Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son. And initially those words, they referred to God, God taking his people out of Egypt at the Exodus. But Matthew sees those words as a foreshadowing of God bringing his own son, the son of God, out of Egypt. It's Matthew's way of identifying Jesus as the one with whom all of Israel can identify. After all, time and again, the Jewish people had found themselves, have found themselves living as as a foreign people. They found themselves living time and again as refugees being pushed from one land to another. Just study a little bit of the history of the Jewish people throughout all of history, constantly having to escape the next wave of persecution. So think of it this morning. The baby Jesus is a refugee, homeless, living the life of a wanderer, needing a place of safety. And yet, was that not how he eventually lived the whole of his life? For Jesus said, and Matthew is the one who records his words, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You see, throughout his life, Jesus lived as a wanderer, a pilgrim, just passing through and without the stability of a permanent home, no permanent place to lay his head. The Son of God had left his heavenly home to dwell among men, living his life as a foreigner among us. For in reality, how many of us know this was not his home? This was not his home. We could say that the pattern... For Jesus' life began with and is exemplified here in this part of the Christmas story. He and his family escaping to Egypt. We see a picture of Jesus as a refugee living in a foreign land. And then thirdly, Matthew shows us that Jesus lives as a Nazarene. He lives as a Nazarene. Matthew tells us that after Herod's death, Joseph is instructed to take his family back to Israel and eventually to Galilee and to escape the, in order to escape the threat posed by Archelaus, as many other Jews had done at that time. It seems like at this point there was a, there was a flood of Jews um, up north, t- towards the north, to come out from under, un, under the persecution that was taking place in Judea. And it was then that Joseph and Mary go to Nazareth. And Matthew writes this, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene, or literally one from Nazareth. You know, it's like, well, I'm from New Jersey. I'm a Jerseyite. I don't know. Is that the word? Right? Right? It's very simple. From Nazareth. But here's the problem, okay? There's no particular prophecy in the Old Testament that says that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene, one from Nazareth. You won't find that anywhere in the Old Testament. And so we have to ask, well, what is Matthew referring to? 
Why does Matthew say this? Notice a couple things. For one, Matthew speaks of the prophets, not as he does elsewhere, as the prophet. The prophet says, and then he quotes the prophet. But he says the prophets. It's clear he's referring to an overarching theme of the prophets as a whole, not to one particular prophecy. The second thing we know is this, that the term Nazarene was a term of disdain. You see, Nazareth itself was a place of disdain. For if you remember, in John chapter 1, we read how Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses, excuse me, Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, do you remember what Nathanael said? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, why did he say that? Why did he say that? What was happening culturally? What kind of reputation did Nazareth have that he would say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, I'd hate it for someone to say, can anything good come out of Shrewsbury? Can anything good come out of Eatontown or Long Branch or Oceanport? Later on, the religious leaders questioned the validity of Jesus' ministry, stating and knowing that he had come from Nazareth, but stating that the prophets all came from Judea. They're like, prophets don't come from Galilee, and especially not Nazareth. And here's something that's really interesting. In the book of Acts, the Christians, followers of Jesus, are called, they don't call themselves this. They're called this by outsiders, the sect of the Nazarenes. Such was meant to be a derogatory term. See, the Christians, eventually, they called themselves Christians, followers of Jesus. But outsiders said, oh, they're, they're the sect of the Nazarenes. So what was Matthew referring to? What we know is this. The Old Testament scriptures refer to the Messiah, not as a Nazarene in particular, but as one who would be disdained and rejected. Being called a Nazarene speaks of the fact that Jesus was the one of whom Isaiah wrote, Isaiah 49, 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised and abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Or Isaiah 53, 3, that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Or as the psalmist wrote in that psalm from which Jesus quoted when he was dying on the cross, he's, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me from Psalm 22? And I kind of have always pictured Jesus quoting the psalm as a whole while he's dying on the cross. But verses 6 through 8 say this. He says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver. Deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And, and there is more for the prophets pointed out time and again the fact that Messiah would come not with fanfare, parades, and the praises of people, but rather he would come despised and rejected like one out of Nazareth, like a Nazarene. And Matthew records Jesus' words. You remember in Matthew 11, 
where Jesus says, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he is a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In other words, Jesus just couldn't get it right for them. No matter what he did, he would be rejected and despised by those who are more interested in their power and prestige than in seeing the kingdom of God come to earth. Or as John would write later on in his gospel, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. And throughout his life in ministry, Jesus, the Nazarene, faced rejection by those who should have been glad for his arrival. And it was probably asked time and again, over and over again, can anything good come out of Nazareth? For surely he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so Matthew gives to us a clear picture of Jesus, the Nazarene, as the despised and rejected one. And so what is Matthew's point as he retells the account of Jesus' narrow escape and eventual move to Nazareth? Think of it, church. The people to whom Matthew was originally writing, those first Jewish believers who have had to run for their lives, we read about it in the book of Acts, fleeing for their lives from Jerusalem and Judea, They're now living in some foreign places, living as refugees, hated, rejected, and despised by even their own brothers, being called the sect of the Nazarene. To them, Matthew seems to be saying, all of that may be true. But I want you to know we have a Messiah and a Savior who identifies with us in all these things. He's a Messiah and a Savior who's gone through everything that you're going through today. For although Jesus' birth was that of royalty and divinity as recognized by the Magi, he came as one who from the very start of his life faced hardship and rejection and pain. From the start of his life to its very end, Jesus lived as that suffering servant, narrowly escaping death time and again, living as a foreigner, even as a refugee among those for whom he came, despised and rejected by those for whom he would give his life. And as the writer of Hebrews one day put it, later on for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted or tried as we are yet without sin a high priest a messiah a savior who sympathizes with us in everything that we go through in life i'm going to ask the worship team if they've come if they would come You see, Matthew is not retelling the story of Jesus' birth merely for historical purposes, but he's sending us a message that Jesus, the Messiah of the Jews and the Savior of the world, is a Savior who has experienced all the hardship and pain and weakness that you and I face each day of our lives. He knows what it's like to live with uncertainty, facing emotional and physical pain, being rejected by enemies, betrayed by friends. He even understands the suffering of death. And it's in that context that we hear Jesus, our Savior, again recorded by Matthew, saying, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I love the way the old hymn writer put it. 
Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless, we, spotless Lamb of God, was he. Full redemption, can it be? Say it with me. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What is it? Come on, I don't hear you, church. Hallelujah. What a Savior. For when he comes, our glorious King, to his kingdom us to bring, then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And so today, as we come to the end of Christmas according to Matthew, I want to encourage us to respond in faith to Jesus as Messiah, to Jesus as our Savior, and the one to whom we can look and bring all of our needs. Knowing that he came for us, he gave his life for us, and he's more than able and willing to work in our lives, and he understands, he sympathizes, he knows everything we've gone through. Listen, if you are experiencing the pain of betrayal, know that Jesus has been betrayed. If you have experienced the pain of rejection, know that Jesus has been rejected. If you've experienced the pain of, of, of maybe having to quickly flee something that's come into your life and you don't know what to do next, know that Jesus has been there there. He has experienced everything that we experience. And so we know we have a Savior who loves us, who identifies with us. That's what it means, the incarnation, Jesus, the divinity coming and becoming humanity. Why? Because he was letting us know he knows it all. He understands it all. He was not going to minister to us just from the glories of heaven, right? Paul wrote he didn't hold on to it, but he let it go, and he came to dwell among us as a man, even to become our servant. So this morning, whatever's happening in your life, whether you're here in the sanctuary, you're online with us today, I want you to look to Jesus. Know that he knows you, he loves you, he understands it all. There's nothing that you need to hide from him today. Would you stand with me this morning as we pray? Lord, this morning we look to you. Jesus, we look to you as Messiah, as Savior of our lives. The one who saves us from our sin and gives to us new hope, both for this life and for eternity. And Jesus, we thank you that you are a friend of sinners. You've become our friend. And Jesus, that you, you understand all the pain and the sorrow that life can bring our way. That Jesus, you understand all the things that come into our lives and into our world because you did not remain in heaven untouched by it all, but you came and you allowed yourself to be touched even to the point that you became despised and rejected. Jesus, the Nazarene, but, Lord, we come to you in faith today, thanking you for your life, for your work in our lives, thanking you for your gift, of your ministry, your grace at work in our lives. And again, every need that we have, we cast our cares upon you, knowing that you care for us and that you sympathize with us. 
you feel for us today. And you're more than able to walk with us even through the valley called the shadow of death and to be our good shepherd, even our great shepherd, the shepherd of our souls. And so we look to you this morning saying, Jesus, all of our hope is in you. Our life is in you. Our peace is in you. Our salvation is in you. Our hope is in you. It's all found in you today. And I pray, God, that you would remind us of that truth, of these truths time and again. As we look to you. As we look to you this morning. We thank you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We began this series um, with this song. It says, Jesus, Messiah. It speaks so well to what we spoke about this, this morning. What's resounding in our hearts. And I just want us to sing again as we, as we close this series of messages. But, but let it not just be a song. Let it be your statement of faith this morning. Amen, church? Come on, amen, church? Amen, amen. Thank you, Pastor D. He became seen Who knew no sin become his righteousness he humbled himself and carried the cross love so
Jesus for your love. Thank you Jesus for everything you have done in your lives, everything you did on the cross. Today we can we can call sons and daughters because you paid the price on the cross. Jesus we are so thankful. We are so thankful you celebrate your life Jesus. We're in the season that remember that in you celebrate your life Jesus because you are worthy of all things. The Word of God says all things was created to you, by you, through you, Jesus. Jesus, your name is, is higher than other names, Jesus. Jesus, your name is lifted high, Jesus. And we praise you. We worship you in Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus, for this morning. Thank you for this service, Jesus. Because your presence is in this place, Jesus. We came for you this morning. And you came just to encounter us. And change us from inside out, Jesus. Jesus, for this week, I want to ask your blessing, your presence, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that we can be light the way you are light, Jesus. Jesus, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you so much, Jesus, for this morning. Amen. Amen. God bless you, church. Have a great, great week, great Sunday. In Jesus' name.